Hey man, it is good to be here with you tonight. Um, <clears throat> just want to share our love from our turkey team that they are doing, uh, they're doing really well. I, if you're like me, you're trying to keep up with things. Uh, I don't watch much TV, hardly at all, ever, but I do uh, catch some news. And uh, today on uh, my news app, um, there was actually an article about what's going on in Turkey in Gazanatep, which is the city that our team is in between there and Antioch, the literal city that they're in, a huge country, 80 or 90 million people, uh, right there by the Syrian border, how that Turkey is beginning, the government is beginning to kick out some um, mercy, um, some helpful organizations, U.S.-based organizations, Mercy Home or something like that, that are feeding Syrian refugees that are crossing the border. The pictures that we've been trying to keep up with and show you guys from the team, um, literally, these are some of, this is the exact area that, that our team is in. And so it's, uh, it's, no, it's no small coincidence, it's no small thing that the God of all creation, out of all of the world, uh, right now the, the only place that specifically pointed out a city in the articles that I read today in Turkey was exactly where our guys have been. And so that is actually a testimony to God's greatness. He's got us at the right place, at the right time, uh, for, in the right season for him to be able to do a great work there. So uh, keep our team lifted up, especially if you signed up in prayer. We want to remind you about that. Whatever time that you've signed up, be faithful in that. If you want to add to your day and pray further for the team that's there in Turkey, please do so. Uh, we also have Abimbola that's in Malaysia. He is uh, on a job assignment there, but everywhere Abimbola goes, he gets done with his day at work. He goes back to wherever he's staying. He gets, he gets done. He's like, okay, Lord, where do you want me to go eat? All right, Lord, where do you want me to go? And he just starts walking. And so he's, uh, he's made some great friends with some Muslims there. They've gone to soccer matches. They've, he's met family. He's prayed for people in the hospitals. So this is Abimbola while he's on a six-week or so work trip in Malaysia doing the work of the Lord. Um, also, if you keep lifted up, Christy and I are trying to get our visas to be able to go to India. We talked with Brother Anand Israel uh, yesterday, Matt and I did, Pastor Matt and I did, and uh, can't wait to, we're just waiting for the approval from the right government officials it's been, they've been in a holding pattern since Monday. I was expecting to have an answer on Monday because you can check online. And so we're just waiting for approval. Would you guys pray for us about that? Um, we need something to break open in the heavenly realm there. So we want, uh, we're asking for a 10-year tourist visa um, so that we can go and have multiple entries. And once we get this one, then we're able to go when we need to. And uh, Brother Anand has, uh, you know, about 15 or so uh, sermons, services already prepared for us if we can get there. So uh, we're excited. This is, it's going to be a good time. So if you'll be lifting us up in prayer for that as well. Today is March 8th, 2017. The title of tonight's message is No More Excuses. Amen. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, no more excuses. no more excuses. Turn to your other neighbor that you didn't want to talk to and say, yeah, you heard him. Mm-hmm. No more excuses. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 21. We're going to just jump right into it here. If you're a parent, you understand that idea of no more excuses. In my household, uh, I have uh, three incredible kiddos. And uh, I have two in particular, the eldest and the youngest, that always wanted to give reasons for what was going on. But dad, only if you, if you could only understand why I just kicked the neighbor right in the face. That would help the whole situation. You need to know why, Dad. No, actually, I don't. I, I don't need to know why. There is no reason. There's no excuse. There's no explanation. And for two of my three, 
you would have thought that I would have, uh, that I would have spanked them with, you know, with all due force just by saying, no, you can't tell me the reason. Ugh, it would start, they would start convulsing because they, had, they felt obligated to tell me why, but I knew that what was coming was just an excuse. In Numbers chapter 21, let's start in verse 4. Say there when you're there. Yeah. Verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Ever grown impatient on the way? What does that sound like? Are we there yet? <laughs> when, when you travel and you get, to, you get the privilege of going on mission trips, man, along the way you can get impatient. When you're sitting on a plane for 16 hours, 18 hours, you're like, are we there? What is going on? It's easy to become impatient along the way in what God has for us to do. We always envision that God's plan for our lives is going to take much shorter than it actually takes. We think that he's going to speak to us one day and like four days later we're, we're already, we're in it, right? We're doing it. We, are, we, are, we know everything we're supposed to know and we're actually functioning in the work of the Lord. No, the truth is, is we know that it is a long process. I felt like I was called to be in minister when I was 16 years old at a youth camp in South Dallas at Christ for the Nations Institute. You know how long it took me where I was a full-time pastor? Almost 20 years. I went through a stand as a teacher and as a principal, did all kind of other things. You know what God was not interested in? He wasn't in a hurry. He was working out my character along the way. The talents that you've given, the skills that you have, he can develop that in a much shorter time. Uh, if you've learned other languages to speak, you can actually learn a language in a relatively short time, but if you're going to learn the culture that goes with it, that takes much longer. You understand what I'm saying? Do you realize how many things as an American you say that you don't actually mean? Right? I don't notice those things until I'm in a foreign country and I'm asking someone to interpret for me. And they just look at me kind of like, uh, brother, I do not understand. Well, I mean, that's cool, right? It's cool. I don't mean anything about the temperature. I'm saying that it's favorable to me. I like it. It's cool. Right? They don't, you, have to, you start learning that you have to learn a lot more than just the language. You have to learn the culture. In the kingdom, you have to learn more than just the assignment. Can you, do you have the skill to be able to teach or preach? That's a very small set of skills that you need to be a pastor. That's a very small amount of what you do as a minister of the gospel. Getting up on the stage should be a very small part of what you do. Everything else that you do around that is what it takes the character to be developed in you that you can actually handle. If you can't handle those things, then you should never be able to get on a stage. In our day and time, we don't really care about that. If you look good, if you speak well, let's put you up on a stage. Yeah, that's not the way that the kingdom works. And here we're seeing that. But the people grew impatient on the way. Everybody say impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses. Wow. And said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Um, what miserable food was that? The manna that he was raining down from heaven. All they had to do was go outside of the tent and go collect the manna and then have enough food. They didn't have to even work for it other than going and collecting it. This detestable food. Yeah, it's pretty much showing their heart towards the Lord. Verse 6, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Ooh. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Whoa, that escalated quickly, didn't it? The people came to Moses and said, <laughs> We sinned when we spoke against the Lord. Ever gotten your hand slapped so hard by the Lord that you're like, Yeah, that was my bad. Like you're doing something. 
Amen. If you haven't, if you didn't just raise your hand, then you really haven't done this thing yet. When you're walking along and you're, you're getting, as my dad used to say when I was growing up, speaking of uh, euphemisms, I was getting too big for my britches. I don't even know what a britch is, but apparently I was getting too big for them, right? Britches, right? You're getting, in other words, you are speaking much more arrogantly. You're acting in a much more arrogant way than what your character should be able to handle here. You've got to, you've got to rein that back in. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. We've seen this sometimes still in our medical societies, right? There's a pole on an ambulance with a singular snake wrapped around it. You'll see some that have the pole and two snakes intertwined, right? Different versions of this story, but rooted here and in different parts in history as well. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What an interesting picture, right? When we've been tainted by sin, we've been bitten by sin. That, that serpent that's crawling around, that, that infects who we are, that causes death, it always brings death. If you're like me when I grew up, the only good snake is a? There you go. There is no good sin that can stay in your life. You've got to always get rid of the sin or it will cause death. So what God deals with, he put a bronze serpent. The bronze is the idea. It symbolizes judgment. So the one who knew no sin became sin and was judged on our behalf. Yes? A picture that we should be very familiar with. Let's take a look at another couple of scriptures. Uh, Hold your place here in Numbers. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then we're all very familiar with the next verse, right? For God so loved the world. But the picture that leads us into the idea that for God so loved the world is this serpent that's lifted up. All we have to look, we have to look to it. We have to turn our eyes upward to see what God has done and to see the sacrifice that he's done, that he has conquered sin. We believe in that and we are healed. We are saved from the sinful nature. Let's turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Are you there? We're getting there, huh? Getting there. Zechariah. Here's what it says. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Everybody say grace. Grace. Everybody say supplication. supplication. They will look on me. The one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Do you hear the illusion here? The illusion. We're, we're not saying that it's the same thing as Moses raising up the staff, but what we're saying is he, they will look to me. They're going to look up at me, and it's gonna, they're going to realize that I'm the one that they pierced. There's going to be a revelation that the one who was lifted up is going to create mourning in this case. Turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 29. We're just going to rattle through these rather quickly here. 
John 1, 29, it says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look. <laughs> Where are your eyes? I don't know. But you need to look right here because we found the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. He's conquered sin. I've seen him. I see him now. And I want you guys to focus on him as well. John chapter 12. You guys know these verses, so we're, we're going through them at a rapid pace. Trying to wake us up, trying to keep us going here. John chapter 12 and verse 32 says this. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see this picture over and over again. Hebrews 12, chapter, chapter 12 and verse 2. It says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This exalted Savior that we have to keep our focus on. But I want you to turn to a scripture with me and see what the children of Israel did with this incredible sign. We see it littered through the New Testament. We even see it in the Older Testament in the Prophets. This is a picture of Jesus Christ and him conquering sin, being judged for the sin of all mankind and overcoming. Look in 2 Kings chapter 18. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. So Moses raised the bronze snake, correct? Somebody who's been in our Monday nights recently, help me give an approximate time period for when Moses was on the earth and could have done this. About 1600, 1500. I'm going to go ahead and put it at 1500 BC. Okay? Second Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, if you'll read it with me. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, everybody say Hezekiah. And wholehearted Hezekiah, what a, what, a, what a neat king to study. Son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Hezekiah is a king of Judah. Began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. <laughs> What'd you do at 25? I don't know. He's king of Judah. How do you like that? And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Amen for that. Just as his father David had done. Listen to what he did to show you that he was doing right in the Lord. He removed the high places. Everybody say high places. places. What are the high places in the Bible? There are places where people had gone. The high places in a topography, they would pick high places and what would they do? They would make idols and altars to foreign gods. They'd pick somewhere high and be like, well, literally, we must be closer to God when we do this. So we're going to make our altar our, our, our false idols, and we're going to put them here in these high places. So when you're reading through scriptures and you're reading high places, it's almost always associated with some type of idolatry that's going on. Uh, Asherah poles, uh, altars to foreign gods, temples to foreign gods. Throughout the scripture, you can find at least 30 named gods that the people either of, of Israel started to worship or the surrounding countries worshipped. You can find them as you read through the scripture. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces... Wait, what did he break into pieces? He broke into pieces the bronze snake, 
Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Wait, what? One little verse, one little part of a verse here. This same thing that Moses was told by God to create that we see throughout the Newer Testament. It is a sign of Jesus Christ. What a powerful testimony. Do you know what they started to do? Apparently, they started to burn incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but you guys can, can follow along with me. By the way, the word Nehushtan, it sounds like it. When you say it, that word in the Hebrew language, it sounds like the word for bronze. It sounds like the word for serpent. And it sounds like the word for unclean thing. It's a play on words. A word that sounds similar to something else. This is what Nehushtan sounds like if, if I could say it properly in the Hebrew. But for up to that time, they had been burning incense to it. Now, we said that Moses was at 1500 B.C. Hezekiah is in the time where the Assyrian captivity takes place. Assyrian captivity. So we're going to say that that's about 700 B.C. How long was the time that they had taken something that God had made and were actually burning incense to it? Eight hundred years. Eight hundred years they had taken something that was actually holy, that was actually righteous, and you know what they did? They made it into an idol. Folks, we're, we're, the topic of tonight's message is what? No more excuses. Even if you have something that was God's will done in God's way, if you're not careful, these things can shift over time in your life where you're no longer doing it exactly the way God had said. You've got something that has shifted in your life and what was once holy, what was once good for you has now become an ensnarement. It's become a trap to you. It's given you an excuse because you're setting something in a high place that should not be set there. When God is speaking to the children of Israel and he's saying, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any God above me. Don't have any God beside me is another way to translate that. Not only in place of, but alongside of. There's probably not anybody in the room, there may not be anybody in the room who would say, yeah, I'm just going to dethrone God from the, from the throne of my heart. I'm just going to remove him. There is no God. I, have, I want to have nothing to do with that. But our propensity as human beings is to put something alongside of him. Do you know why they weren't supposed to have an image of God, an idol of him? Because you start to worship the idol. Because it's what you can see, it's what you can perceive, it's what you can understand. Don't put anything, don't put a form, don't, don't draw a general thing up there, don't have an animal or an object that you can go to, you know why? Because we're human beings and we start worshiping that thing instead of worshiping the one that we should. He is the one who is unseen, we have to trust because he is spirit. How are you going to see him anyway? The Bible says that no one can see him and live. But what we're doing here is they've set up something that God ordained and it moved, it shifted, it drifted, and it became a high place for the people of God. Take a look at second, uh, I'm sorry, take a look at Judges chapter 8. No more excuses. Even if you're doing something that at once was godly in your life, Make sure that you have no excuses. There are no excuses to set it up in a high place. 
well, this is kind of how I do it. This is, what we've, this is what we've always done. Yeah, be careful that you're not burning incense to a bronze snake. Be careful that you haven't shifted something to a high place in your life that should not be occupying that place. Judges chapter 8. Are you there? Take a look at verse 24. I'm sorry, let's go to verse 23. Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord God will rule over you. Verse 24, and he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Y'all remember the story of Gideon? We can turn to Hebrews 11 if you want. We can show that Gideon is listed among the mighty men of faith. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Jephthah, on and on and on. Mighty man. Gets his army pared down from 32,000 to 300 and, and goes about and does the work. Saves the nation of Israel. Verse 25, they answered, we'll be glad to give you a little bit of the plunder. Now that we've won and we've collected all this stuff and we've all collected it, we'll be glad to give you an earring. We'll be glad to give you a gold coin here. The whole group of people. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, uh, 43 pounds of gold, 40 pounds of gold. I don't know what the current gold rate is per ounce, but it's per ounce. So that is a ton of gold. That is a lot of gold, not counting the ornaments, the pennants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod. You guys know what an ephod is? It was a priestly garment. I could take you to Exodus 28 and show you how the ephod was supposed to be made. I can take you through many examples of what the ephod should look like and the role that it was supposed to have in a priest's life. There's one for the high priest. There's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's one for the priest to wear. All of the Levites, if they were operating in the temple, they were supposed to have an ephod. It was an important garment. It was supposed to show you that you were set apart. There was something that was supposed to be different about it. So it was God's standard to have an ephod. But Gideon turned the gold into an ephod, which he placed at Oprah, his town. What does the next sentence say? Just look at it for a second. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. They took the ephod. Now it was all gold and fancy. So we have something in, uh, in the bronze snake. It was God's will and it was done God's way. And people veered off. Here we have God's will for an ephod, but it was done man's way. We've taken it, we've shifted it. God didn't say to make it completely of gold. There was gold threading in it, but there was also blue and scarlet and purple. It was beautiful. It was supposed to be designed to show you that this thing is otherworldly. When Josephus, a famous historian, went through and saw these, uh, the, the feasts and the festivals, he said it's almost like you're looking into another planet. There's some, there's some other king. There's something else that's going on here. This was in, in, uh, in the early hundreds A.D. He was looking at it and going, there is something that is incredibly appealing and, and glorious and majestic about what they're doing. It's almost like it was of a heavenly design and he was seeing it here on the earth. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to who? To Gideon and his family. 
Something that the Lord instituted became a snare for Gideon. And it also became a snare for his family. Would you look down in verse 33? Not only was it a a snare to Gideon, by the way, Gideon ruled over the people of Israel for 40 years. This was in the time of the judges. We had not yet gotten to Saul being king. Right? We were, we're out of the Exodus. We've already passed through that. Joshua's been the leader. Now we've shifted into an, an area where the judges are ruling the people. And he, and he ruled for 40 years and there was peace during his lifetime. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. <laughs> what an interesting word, right? Prostituted. God wants us to be his bride. When we do these type of things, it shows that we, we're actually we're trying to serve the same function, but we're trying to get what we want out of it. We're trying to serve similar functions, but we have the wrong heart. We're trying to serve similar functions, but we want to get our cut of what's going on. A prostitute. They prostituted themselves. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Perith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued him from the hands of all their enemies on every side. So if we have God's will done God's way, we can drift from it. If we have God's will done our way, it can definitely cause us to drift and we put things in a high place. We put things in an in a, in a idolatrous place. If I'm going to say that tonight is about no more excuses, we're going to say that it's no more excuses. What I'm trying to establish for us is watching and seeing how the people of God handle different things in different time periods. They handle the sacred and it it could lead, lead them off track. They handled the things that were supposed to be set aside to be holy, and they didn't handle it right. They decided they were going to make it bigger and better and better. You don't actually know if Gideon did it because there was no ephod around and he was trying to be helpful. You don't know know if he did it because he was greedy and wanted all the gold and was trying to show off. There's no scriptures that tell you. And my point to that is, it must not matter at all what his heart was on the matter. He couldn't go by the excuse that said, my heart was right. I mean, I was trying to do the will of the Lord. Look, it's an ephod. Doesn't that suffice? No, it doesn't suffice. To do God's will your own way is just the wrong decision. It's just the wrong way to go about it. We can look at places like Judges 17. You don't have to turn there. If you've ever heard the message, 10 shekels and a shirt by Paris Reedhead, it is about Judges 17. When a man took in silver and made an ephod, and he then he bought a, a, a Levite for 10 shekels of silver and some clothing. 10 shekels and a shirt. Caused him to compromise what God had said. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see David wearing a godly, the priestly ephod and dancing before the people of the Lord. The ephod wasn't the problem, folks. It wasn't having the garment because David put it on and he danced with all of his might before the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back in to be where it should be. Turn to Revelation chapter 15. Are y'all with me tonight? Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me? We're real quiet. I, I, I don't want to lose you. I, this is an important word because we're supposed to have no more excuses. Everybody say, no more excuses. Say it again, no more excuses. I mean that you should have no excuses in your life. 
It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter the difficulty of your childhood. It doesn't matter how terrible your parents were. Guess what? Welcome to the club. I don't want to be insensitive to where you came from, but what I'm saying is that is not an excuse. You can't have an excuse about the difficulties that your life has been, of how difficult your life has been. That's not an excuse about what you lack, what you don't personally possess. Perhaps you're putting yourself on an idol. Perhaps you're raising yourself up on a high place and you're not even noticing it. When we give excuses constantly for what we can't do or what we won't do or what we shouldn't do, instead of going to the Lord and simply obeying, you set yourself up as your own high place. You exalt yourself in a place where you're like, yeah, my excuse, my reason, my thought, my desire, my will, my strength is the reason for me to do or not do anything that's before me. Really? That's, that's how you want to go about this, huh? In Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 6. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Ooh. Wow. What were they dressed in? They were basically dressed in an ephod. They were dressed in clean, shining linen. White linen, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chest. This is what the angels of heaven are dressed with. Turn to Revelation chapter 19, just a few pages over. Let's look at verse 8. Well, yeah, let's start in verse 6. It's too good. I was trying to shorten it right to it, but... Verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the peal, like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah. Have you ever been in a crowd that's big enough that it sounds when they're talking, when they start to chant something, it starts sounding like, it starts rumbling, it starts roaring like thunder, it starts sounding like rushing water. If you've ever been in a crowd that's that big, it's something that's kind of special. When I was in college, I band nerd, king of the band nerds, drum major in the band, and that was one of my favorite things, surprisingly enough, being a musician, was the sound of everything. I could get out in Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, dressed in my sequined Elvis-looking thing that I wore. Oh, it was, it was great. It was great. Start walking out from the end zone, and when the crowd started realizing that it, was, that it was time, it was that time. And I started moving out, and that crowd starts, I literally, I was 10 yards ahead of the band behind me, 325 people in the band, college musicians, excellent musicians. And they would start, and I promise you, the crowd would get so loud that I could not hear the 325-piece band that was right behind me. It was that loud. That's just for a band. Band nerds out on the field, starting a football game. How silly, right? It was a blast when I was doing it. I loved it. Can you imagine? I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. Here's what the loud peals of thunder were shouting. Here's what was causing it to sound like thunder or like roaring, rushing waters. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You know what you can't do when you're making excuses? You can't get ready. Get ready, get ready, get ready. You cannot get yourself ready when you're making excuses. Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And in case you're missing it, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. This is how you make yourself ready is you eliminate all excuses. Take a look at verse 14 of the same chapter. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. So Jesus is dressed in fine linen. The angels are dressed in fine linen. The armies of the Lord dressed in fine linen. This is an important piece that we have here that we must keep perfectly in alignment. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. So we've got the bronze snake. We've got Gideon's golden ephod. The idea may have been right that you're supposed to have something to wear that is worthy of the king. But the kind of clothing that we're supposed to put on is righteous acts. There are righteous deeds that we are supposed to exemplify. And you cannot have a righteous deed with an excuse-filled heart. You can't have it. God won't have it. In his kingdom, it's better that you have a pure heart and fail than to have an impure heart and succeed at your task. That's true. I feel like the Lord is trying to encourage us here in this place that you have to make sure that you have not put some idolatrous form of success as in the high places of your heart. Success. What is success? Success is us doing exactly what God tells us to do. It's us going up and talking for the per- to the person who's at Starbucks and then rejecting what we say. Success is we feel like God told us to go and pray for someone in the hospital and them not getting up out of the hospital bed. That's success. You know why? Because you did what God told you to do. It's idolatrous to get offended that you went and did what God told you to do and it didn't work out the way that you wanted it to. It's idolatrous, my friends. And I've done it more times than I care to count. I had expectations of how I wanted to work out, the timing that I thought should be right, how it should look. No, I've already got it all worked out, Lord. Thank you. I mean, I know, but I made the ephod of gold because I thought it would be, I thought it would be prettier. And I had 45 pounds of gold laying around, so I made an ephod. Yeah, that's not what pleases the Lord. What pleases the Lord is when you do what he tells you to do. Had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine, and I said, hey, brother, this was Monday afternoon. I told some of you guys at Foundations, you're either going to measure your success by how many people are in the seats of your church, or you're going to measure the success by you accomplishing exactly what God told you to accomplish. A thousand people in church is not a success. Not if God asked you to make disciples. Having 5,000 people in church is no more of a success than having 100 people in a church. As a matter of fact, I've come to know that it's probably more successful for you to be exactly obedient to what God has for you. It doesn't matter how many. It doesn't. See, we say that though, and then we live our lives and we actually have expectations on exactly what it should look like. If I'm doing God's will, and we're struggling financially, then 
Lord, what have I done? Am I doing something wrong, Lord? I've prayed that before, have you? I mean, I'm, I'm working hard at it, and I'm like, this isn't working out the way I thought. Uh, this is not as smooth as I thought it was. God, we've moved. We're, we sold everything for you. And now things are worse for us financially than they've ever been in our lives. Are we doing something wrong? Are we sinning? Uh, did, we, did, we, did we not hear you? And he goes, no, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. This is a funny way to show it, Lord. Why? Because I have something in my heart that he's actually working out by not giving me the success that I thought that I should have. Lord, this is not easy. I thought this was supposed to be comfortable. No. The American idea, what we live in a world that wants comfort, we exalt comfort above everything. God forbid that you actually ever offend anyone. My point is not to walk around and offend people, but how are you going to get something done if you're always trying to acquiesce to what people want? If you're going to try to bow down to what everybody else around you wants, how are you going to make a stand? The answer is, is you can't. So if you're going to speak, you're either going to speak truth or you're going to worry about the comfort level of people around you. Is it the right thing for them to hear about it or not? Why, are you, why do you guys push the Holy Spirit? Pastor Matt, in the middle of the worship service, said that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, you should. We're unashamed about that. You know why? Because far too many people around us are, are trying to back off of that because we don't want you to know about that right now. We, we want, we're going to have a special weekend somewhere up in the future where you can learn about salvation. And then once you learn about salvation, it's kind of like a camp for the kids. You go off to youth camp. We're going to teach you to get saved the first night. And then the second night, we're going to teach you about the Holy Spirit. And the third night, we're going to challenge you to go out and win the world. See you next year. I'm just not going to do it. We're going to say every time that you're here, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to say every time that you're here, the gifts of the Spirit should work in this house. They must be done to strengthen God's people. If they're not being done in this church, then you need to come and talk to us and be like, hey, what's wrong? Is there sin in the camp? What, what's going on here? Because I don't get it. Does everybody agree with that or not? Y'all just looking at me. I'm not sure sometimes. I need your help. Because if you believe that that's supposed to be what we're responsible for, are you seeing those things in your life? What kind of standard are we going to do? In Luke 13, it talks about uh, there's a parable of the fig tree. And the owner comes out and says, I'm not seeing any fruit. Cut it down. Why am I going to waste soil on that? And the, <laughs> the tenant is going, hey, can we do one more year? Just one more year. And then after that year, if it's not producing fruit, cut it down. I want to remind you that the Lord spoke that to our church about a year ago. How are you doing producing fruit? Without making any excuses, how are you doing producing fruit? What are you doing to dethrone all the high places in your own life that get there and you didn't even know how they got there? I don't care how they got there. We're not going to spend time to, to debrief and to deconstruct how the high places got where they are in your life. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of your effort. Just tear them down. Tear it down. Burn, the, burn it down. Get it out of your life. I could share with you 50 scripture from here out. I've got tons of things that I want to talk to you about. It doesn't matter. 
if you're not going to actually apply what we're talking about. It doesn't matter if you've just got high places and you're just going to leave them as high places in your heart. It doesn't matter if you're still idolatrous. When you're making excuses, you're walking in idolatry. Jeez, that's kind of hard, Pastor. No, it's not. Are you going to fulfill the will of the Lord for your life or not? This is how you do it. This is me. Uh, the part that I'm going to deconstruct is how the most excellent disciples that we have. You know how they do it? There's never an excuse. It wasn't because it was a rainy day and I was just feeling a little depressed. It wasn't because it was the sun was in my eyes so I couldn't see properly. It was none of that. It was, I must have done that because I have a sinful heart. Lord, please forgive me and remove this sin from me. They just tear down the idol anytime it starts looking like it. They crush it. It's already pulverized. They'll just crush it again just to make sure. Make sure that nothing else can, can be planted in that area. We're going we're to quarantine that place off. We're never even going to go there again. Now, let's go on to the next one. And that's what we find in Asa in Second Chronicles 15. Take a look at verse 8. Are you there? When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols... Um, I like this chapter. And if you, if you read it too quickly, you kind of miss some of these things. He took courage. He removed not just the idols. He didn't just remove the idols. idols. He removed the detestable idols. <laughs> kind of a, a double modifier there. I love it. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin. And from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico in the Lord's temple. Take a look down at verse 16. So he goes through. This is what Asa is known for. He's known for clearing out the entire land of Judah. He knocks down every high place. He destroys every altar. He digs up everything that should be dug up. He gets rid of it all. King Asa also deposed of his grandmother. Come on, Granny. Time for you to go. Disposed of his grandmother, Maka, Maaka. Sometimes in some translations, in your translation, it may say his mother. It's a word that can kind of go both ways. Grandmother, we'll go with granny here. Granny, from her position as what? It's queen mother. You got to be careful when you let people get a position of queen mother in your life. But I love my mama. Hey, I love my mama. When my mama calls, I try to answer. I really do. If I can't answer, then I will call her back as soon as I can because she's my mama. And so I find that the scripture says for children to, to I'm supposed to honor my parents in the Lord. I'm going to honor them. <laughs> but she's not my queen mother. <laughs> do you hear what that sounds like? Can, can you already hear what a queen mother, a place of, can you hear this same spirit that's been going on for thousands of years that's trying to elevate some type of mother to a status of almost godlike proportions. Maybe even... Okay. So she had become... She had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Not just a Asherah pole, but a repulsive one. Asa cut down the pole like a totem pole, broke it, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Asa was taking care of sin in the camp. Do you guys remember Pastor Matt's sermon on being forceful? Yes. If you did not hear that, 
even if you did hear it, you probably should go listen to it again. Because that was an excellent sermon on Sunday. Forceful. There was sin where? There's sin in you, there's sin in the camp, or there's spiritual forces at work, and you've got to defeat the sin in each of those areas. In this example, Asa's defeating sin in the camp. In the chapter before, you know what he's doing? He's up against an army that some say may have been a million in the army against him. One million soldiers against him. Zerah, a Cushite. Uh, it's from the North Nile region. Some people may even say it's Ethiopia. An Ethiopian army came in a million strong. Asa cries out to the Lord, and you know what happens? He decimates them. He, de- he obliterates them because the Lord God was with him. But let's look in chapter 16 and verse 7. Chapter 16 and verse 7. You with me? At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. So what happened here? Asa has another person that's trying to come and confront them. In this case, it's actually the king of Israel. And so what Asa does, before he had met a million-man army and defeated them because he cried out to the Lord. This time he said, you know what? I'm going to get the king of of Aram, Ben-Hadad, and I'm just going to ask him to come over and help. What he does is he sets it up for his son and for Israel and for generations later to get dominated by these people. He no longer sought after the Lord. At one point, what he sought the Lord for, he realized that now he had the strength to do on his own. He started going, no, 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 I got this. Before, I, I wasn't quite ready for it. Sometimes we do better at the beginning of things. You know why? Because we're just a little bit nervous about it. Anybody remember when you first start driving? Right? You're trying to, you're like, at least I was. Hands at 10 and 2 or whatever, whatever, they're, whatever they're teaching now, right? 10 and 2, I've got the radio down. I'm, no, psh, psh. Everyone in the, shush, I'm driving. Like you're kind of stressed out about everything that's going on. What happens after you're driven for a while? Eating a cheeseburger, texting on the phone, playing words with friends. I don't know what you're doing. Singing music, talking, yelling at the people in front of you. You, you, you are no longer worried about anything even if you should be. It's actually easier to get more dangerous the further away from a beginner. (laughs) Beginner, you don't have the experience. But once you get experience, what you do is you lose the concentration. You lose the focus. You lose the importance of what you're doing. You're driving a 3,000-pound weapon. Really? 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 Sometimes in the kingdom, we're a little bit nervous about things at first. The first time that you have to go up and preach to somebody, whoo, you're like stayed in for two months in a row. 40 hours a week, you're like, oh, oh, oh I got three scriptures. Oh, God, three. <laughs> first time you get ready for prison, you're like, man, you've been fasting and praying. Ask your whole family to be praying for you. You know, called a prayer vigil the night before so you can go to prison and rah. Nolan, you got eight minutes. Oh, eight minutes! What happens after a while? You're rolling in. Going to slide on into the prayer time. You're in the car trying to figure it out a little bit. The familiarity can breed contempt within our hearts. Asa does this exact thing. 
Take a look at, uh, let's keep going. Next verse, please, Susan. <clears throat> We're not the Cushites and the Libyans, a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. Next verse. This is a very popular verse. People take this verse out of context. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. I have used this verse as an encouragement in my own life. Lord, your eyes are looking for those who are fully committed to, him, to, committed to you. Lord, find me. Ooh, I need your help. Come find me. The Lord is actually saying this statement through the prophet. He's saying this statement as an indictment against Asa. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Look at the next sentence. You have done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. What was the foolish thing? He went and cried out people to help him and not the Lord. Well, I mean, you know, and this church encourages the brotherhood of believers more than any church I've ever been at, and it is right to do so. But you can't in your heart be searching for other things to help you. If you want to ask us to hear from the Lord for you, that's not the way this is supposed to work. You're supposed to be crying out to the Lord and we can come and assist you and teach you and direct you and steer you so that the Lord can help you to make the right decision. We can tell you, hey, I don't think that's right. You need to hear from the Lord. Have you ever... I have said this to some of you. Did you actually pray about this? Um, I mean, you may like pray <laughs> about the situation I'm in. Yeah, I mean like actually pray and ask the Lord what He wants you to do. Or did you just go, mm, I want to do this. Seems good to me. Y'all are laughing because you know. Far too many people are guilty of that. Hey, have you prayed about it? <laughs> no, I didn't. I don't know what the Lord wants. Well, then how about we push pause? How about we take a time out and you go find out what the Lord wants you to do? I'll be praying with you. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. He's looking for you to be fully committed. Like every decision that you make. Like everywhere that you go. Like every single day that you get up and go, Lord... What do you want for me to do? What, what do you want for me to do? I, what do you want me to do? I, I, I'm ready. Lord, I know what I want to do. I've got my, next, I got my plan for the next 27 years all lined out. How about you ask him? Because he'll tell you. His eyes are looking for those who will be like, God, I need your help. I, I don't quite know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are going to stay fixed on you. We've got to remove the high places of excuses. You have no excuse. I have no excuse to not do what the Lord has for us to do. Yeah, pastor, but, but you don't understand. I've been walking in sin. Well, then stop sinning. You don't have an excuse for His mercies are made new every morning. Lamentations 3.23. Come on now. What excuses are you making tonight? What excuses are you making? Oh, I, I can't do that. Oh, I don't know enough. I'm not called. And I, uh, um, the parable of the talents. We shared this on, on Monday night a little bit. Matthew 25. You can write this down. Matthew 25. You get the parable of the talents. God gave five talents. Uh, the, the, the owner gives five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to another person. This is a parable, right? It's a story. He's, he's, he's laying out principles here for you to understand. 
The guy with five doubles it. The guy with two doubles it. The guy with one goes, I only have one. And he comes back and he buries it. When the master gets back, he compliments, well done, my good and faithful servant. The guy who doubled his five to ten. He compliments, well done. My, he says the exact same thing to the servant who only had two to start with and also doubled them. I don't care where you're starting from in the talent pool. The only problem is if you look at what God has given you and you make excuses for what he's given you. The other two men, when you start off, both the five and the two, you know what they said? Master, we know that you. Their focus was on the master. When you look at the words of the lazy and wicked servant, he said, I thought this. His focus stayed upon himself. It showed that he was an idolatrous servant, which made him wicked and lazy, and he was cast out. And he took the one and gave it to the guy with, five, with ten already. So in other words, what am I saying? There's no excuse. If you think you have one talent, I don't care. Double it. Get to work, use it, and let God double that in your life. You know what? The, one, the, the, the idea of this parable is if that one, the person with the one talent would have doubled it, he would have, been, he would have gotten the exact same reward as the other guys. Let's put this in more practical terms. Well, we would do more in this church, but we're not that group that has the five talents. I mean, God just gave some people some extra special talents there. We don't have that. I mean, Pastor Matt is a five-talent kind of guy. Pastor Eric, five-talent kind of guy. You know what? It doesn't matter. That's just an excuse. If you think your level in the kingdom is based on where you started from, then you don't understand the kingdom. You've made your own comfort. You've made it somebody else's fault because that's easier to do because then you're not actually responsible for it, right? If it's not, I mean, I didn't give myself one talent. So what you're doing is you're indicting the Lord is what you're actually doing. I don't have as many talents as Pastor Matt, so I can't do this. If I compare myself with Matt, then I'm, I'll feel bad about myself about 90 times out of 100. And every once in a while, I'll look out and he'll make a mistake and I'll feel better about myself. Isn't that what happens when we start comparing ourselves? Let's be honest. Don't we all do that in some level? Don't we all have to cast these ideas down? Man, if I, if I can remember scripture like Pastor Eric, wow. I don't care whether you can or not. I don't care. And you know what? Neither does God. Because it's easier to say, oh, it's just because he's got this incredible recall. Oh, he does. It's crazy. And you know what? It doesn't let him off the hook from actually having to read the word. It doesn't get him off the hook from actually having to study the word and devote himself to it fully. You're going to blame it on talent? You're missing it. Maybe you're saying, hey, look, um, it's, it's not that I don't think that I have any talent. It's just that I think that what I have is not enough. I'm not saying I'm the one talent person. It's just, it's just not that special. I mean, I can only show a gift of hospitality, and that's kind of small in the kingdom. I mean, I really can't. I mean, I, I know that God has given me, and I'm going to be faithful with my, with my little offering to the Lord. But really... Shame on you. Um, Su Susan, can you put 1 Corinthians 12, 15? Let's try that. First Corinthians 12, 15. 
if the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body. You know what this is? This is the person who looks at their own skill set and compares it with somebody else and decides that that makes them useless for the kingdom. I'm a foot, but I'm not a hand. I mean, I can't grab stuff like that. I mean, I, I can't, I don't have opposable thumbs on my, you know, I'm just a foot. Can you put it up on the screen for me, Susan? Because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body. If you are in this place and you've measured yourself and say, I don't really deserve to be in the body, so I'll just shrink back. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. Just because you don't understand your worth doesn't mean that God assigns you incorrectly. Did you hear the word of the Lord that came forth in the middle of worship? It was this scripture. It was, it was reemphasizing this scripture. You think, you think that God assigned you incorrectly? Quit making excuses. Get off the, the high place of your own heart that God must have wanted something different for you. There are a lot of Christians who think that they should be certain things in the kingdom. Why? Because they just like the idea of it. I want to be an apostle. Good. Good for you. Did the Lord call you to do that? If he called you to do it, then you will do it. You just have to stay persistent enough where you don't let, let yourself leave before you actually get to be what you're supposed to be. If you're really doing what you, God has called you to do, you will succeed. You know why? Because he's made you to do it. He's made you to do it. A hammer doesn't have to try to be a hammer. It just is a hammer. It's pretty useless, though, if you're trying to use the hammer to screw in something, uh, screw in a screw. It's very awkward. It doesn't really work well. And you're like, <laughs> God didn't make me right. No, you're doing the wrong task. Find the nail and go after it. Let the screwdriver do that. It's okay. Quit looking at yourself and saying, I'm not a hand. I'm just a foot. I can't do it. I, I can't remember like them. I can't sing like them. I can't preach like them. I can't teach like them. I can't do that like them. I just, I guess, I guess I just don't have a part. You are being idolatrous by setting your desires above what God has created you to be. If you will let him direct you, you will find such life. You'll find such joy. You'll find such peace. What if you're just called to be a little old pastor? What if you're just called? I'm being facetious, right? Just. But this is the way people look at it. What if you're called to pastor a church as fantastic as this one? Who may never have more than 200 people in attendance? But we're going to send out and we're going to plant churches everywhere we go. Amen. I'll take that. Why? Because I have to trust in him that what he's made me to be. Lord, if I can just be what you've made me to be, then every amount of success that I could ever hope for will be there. Every amount of satisfaction in my life that I've ever desired to have. Maybe you're not satisfied with your life because you're not letting him work in the ways that he's supposed to in your life. You've made excuses for doing it. Because this is not a glorious task, by the way. Getting up in front of you, there's no glory in this. There's no glory. It's, it, I love doing what God has called me to do. You think that the world cares what I do? Do you think that the people I know in these big churches that I've been on staff at, do you think that they care that I'm here? Don't you know that I've gotten calls from people and be like, what the heck are you doing? 
oh, that poor Wade, he, he once had a promising career in the, in the kingdom. And now he's only a little pastor at this little small church. You know what the first thing that friends from that, that world asked me? How big is your church? Hey, wait, how's, you're in Houston now, right? Yeah, man, I'm loving it. God is working. We're seeing people delivered and people spirit-filled and set free and demons cast out. I mean, it's awesome. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. How many people in your church? You know what I've started to do? I've started to find the smallest number that I can imagine. So instead of saying we're between, you know, whatever we are, I'm like, we have about 50 families who give consistently and are part of what we do. Well, how many is that? So we have 50 families <laughs> that seem to be fully committed and are consistent tithers and apart and they're at meetings and they're over at the house. We have like 50 families. It's incredible. This is so worth it. My whole life could be spent doing this. God, this is awesome. They're like, so is that like 200 people? <laughs> Man, 50 families. That's about all I can handle anyway. Between, between all three pastors... That's about what we can handle, about 50 families. We'll bump up to 60, then we send some of them off. <laughs> then we get some more in and we work with them and we send some more off. I figure we'll be about 50 families for a while. Maybe 60. We'll go crazy and get to 60 families. That's awesome. You know why? Because I'm not going to let their version of success cause me to start making excuses because that's what they're trying to do. There's a pressure to do that. Well, why aren't you doing it more? Why don't you have more? You know what you can do? If you made your services shorter, you'd have more people. I'm sure we would. I'm sure we would. They want to come in in the first 10 minutes, tell us what we can do to make it better, to help us be more successful. I wish I was kidding to you. I mean, I wish I was joking with you. They will come in and in 15 minutes, they go, you know, if you did this, you'd be more successful. More successful by whose eyes? What are you talking about? How many people have you sent out to the mission field? How many people are getting discipled in your church? No, don't tell me they're in a small group. Because when I ask you what small groups are for, you're going to say it's for fellowship. But then when you realize and we actually start talking about discipleship, you're going to be like, it's fellowship and discipleship. No, you don't even know what you're doing. Discipleship is not in a class. You can take a class to help you, but discipleship is when you live around each other, when you do life together, when you're around each other for you to know where I'm weak. That's the plan, folks, because I have no excuses. You see what we are. You can come in our homes and be like, man, they're okay at that. They're fantastic at that. <laughs> really? Really? Wow. You guys are lacking in that. Yes, we live our lives out in the open before you. And we're not making any excuses. We're not making any excuses if we make a mistake. We're not making an excuse if we sin. We're just be like, man, that was horrible. I'm going to go repent before the Lord right now. And you're going to get to see us do it. You're going to see our kids when they do it right. You're going to see our kids when they do it wrong. You know why? Because we're not going to make excuses for you. There's no more excuses that are allowed. What about you? Don't make an excuse for your kid. And God, I'm not pointing this at anyone. What do parents do when, when their kids are acting like crazy people? Well, they're tired. They're not feeling well. That's right. It's called sin. <laughs> I would much rather you go like, look, we're trying. He, I, I'm out of control. I'm about to be out of control because this one's out of control. Amen. We're family. This is how it is. You keep working through it. And we love you enough to go, yeah, you're right. They're out of control. But stay at it. 
Be faithful. Let us help you. Let us walk with you. No more excuses. There's not any excuse any of us can make. We have no excuses. You have no excuse. Say, I have no excuse. If we actually live like we don't have an excuse. I'm sorry if your marriage has been tough. I'm sorry if you've been in places where you've, you've had multiple marriages. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if the, the enemy has beat you about the head and shoulders for a long time in your life. I really am. And you know what? You still have no excuse. Our God deserves the righteousness that he desires. Amen. The lamb deserves, he deserves that we give not just our best, but he deserves the best. He deserves everything I have and more. He's worthy of any sacrifice that I can make. A difficulty when we have little ones that get in the hospital a lot, like the Adarmes family. Adopted a baby who's been in the hospital tons of times already. Amen? Right? You know what? He's worth it. Jesus is worth that sacrifice. I've talked to them and seen how good they're doing. I've seen them struggle, and I've seen them rejoice, and I've seen them cry, and I've seen them laugh. And you know what? They have no excuse because God is with them. You have no excuse because God is with you. You don't have an excuse ever. No more excuses. How are we going to get where we want to get as a church when all of us, every single person, from the youngest to the oldest says, there's no more excuses that I will allow in my life. I'm not going to make an excuse for my spouse. I'm not going to make an excuse for my sin. I'm not going to make an excuse for me being vacant. I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm, going to make, I'm not going to make an excuse for me not being here. I'm going to be so stinking honest that I'm going to go forth and say, there is no more excuses, and this is how that I want to please the Lord. Lord, I'm pouring out my life before you. Our definition of success for you is not the same thing that the world does. I know that's hard to, to get. We don't need you to put on a dog and pony show for us. I don't need you to be smart. I don't need you to be handsome. I don't need you to be gifted. I don't need you to be rich. I just want you to serve God with all of your heart. It kills me when people don't live up to their potential in the kingdom. People who are here and around, and you know what I see them? I see them giving into excuse after excuse. And they think that it's real, and they think that it's a good idea. And I'm like, God, it's just excuses. It's just excuses. If you get past the excuse, you may make something of your life in the kingdom. You know what you want to be? You want to be this, but you're afraid that you won't get there. So you just kind of stay around here and hope that everybody else is at the same level as you. So you can be like, yeah, you're messing up. Yeah, I'm messing up too. Whew. What's the common stay, saying in our, in our culture? That misery loves company. We're just saying we're not going to have misery in this place. If you need help, we'll help you. But you have no excuse. If you're broken, we're going to pray that God come and heal you. But you have no excuse. If you want to get better at something in the kingdom, we will pull alongside of you and we will give everything that we have as a leadership team for you. But you have no excuse. If you're going through difficulties and you don't know what to do, we will help you find out what you're supposed to do. But you have no excuse. There is no excuse not to serve God with all of your heart. Not to pour out your life and to go, it doesn't matter about the rest of it. It doesn't. 
We're going to dethrone those high places in our heart. We're going to dethrone those high places that we've held on to where your excuse is more important than what the Word of God says, where your tough time is more important than what God is telling you to do, that your difficulty, that your thought process, that we're all supposed to feel bad for you. No more excuses. Susan, would you put up Romans 12 and verse 1? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Everybody say living sacrifices. sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What is? Offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Your entire lives to Him. That's what spiritual worship is. It's not singing a song and dancing around only. It's when you give your whole life to Him. Next verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the excuses that are around you. Don't conform to it. Don't let it stay in your life. Have a passion about eliminating the excuses in your life. Well, I have a chronic problem here. I don't care. No more excuses. Because I'm not going to allow you to place your chronic whatever, chronic sin, chronic physical problem, chronic whatever, above God's will for your life. I can't let you do that. I can't and I won't. The pastors here will not allow that in you. We're going to, it's because we love you. Because you know what happens is once you get rid of those things, you get rid of the excuses and you actually find God's will for your life. He's like Asa. He, he doesn't matter the size of the army that's against you. He just starts coming through. He starts coming through and he starts coming through and he makes you more than what you are and that's the desire that we all have anyway. Don't you want to be more than you are? Don't you want to make a difference somewhere? They say that the millennial generation, they want to, they want to live for a cause. There's no greater cause than living for what God has, has ordained you to be. Having the right perspective on that I don't need to be somebody else. I don't need to run Rob's race. I just need to run Wade's race. And if I run my race right, because we're all family here, it's going to help you run your race better. And when you run your race better, it's going to help me when I'm weak and tired. This is how this works. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, that selfish, godless system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Quit letting excuses be in there then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. I just can't hear from the Lord. Really? Maybe it's because you're still running in the world's pattern. Because this scripture says, if I renew my mind, if I'm transformed, if I don't give in to the world system, I will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober clear-minded judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Verse 4, just as each of you, I'm sorry, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Your body does not have all the same function. You've got different members that do different things. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, Let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, does serving sound less than prophesying to you? 
Because it made it in the list. It's the second thing in the list. Prophesying. Woo, yeah. Bible says to earnestly desire prophecy, by the way. I'm not knocking prophecy. What I'm trying to do is showing you that serving is important. Let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. Does it say who to teach? So if you're back there teaching the kids, are you fulfilling this? Oh, okay. If you're teaching in prison, you fulfilling this? If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Do you ever think about somebody just being a good encourager? Just get around somebody and you're like, huh, I feel better. (laughs) What did they do? I don't really know what they did. I can't really explain it. They just kind of smiled and I just smiled right back. Well, then encourage, man. There's plenty of people around here who need to be encouraged. Then do it. Why is that less than somebody who can do something else? It's literally listed in the scripture. Oh, it's because we've defined our success by something else than just being what God calls us to be. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If you have, if the Lord has blessed you with finances, be generous. Actually, I'm supposed to command you to be generous. It says later that you are commanded to be generous. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to excel at giving. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. You're the guy who goes around full of mercy. I'm not trying to be silly. We just don't think of this list. We think of the other lists that say, here's the list of demonstrative gifts of the Spirit. Apparently, these are gifts too. If you're part of the body, you're going you're gonna to resemble some of these as well. Would you guys stand with me? I've got tons of other scriptures that I did not use because I don't think that that's what we need. <laughs> we always need scripture. What I'm saying tonight is, is we've got to get to the heart of this thing where we don't let excuses stay around. How many more scriptures do I need to prove to you that you shouldn't have excuses? None? Right, let's all just concede that we need to get rid of the excuses. But how are you going to do that? What is it going to look like? It's going to look like when you get rid of the excuses in your life, you know what's going to happen? It's amazing. When you get rid of the clutter in your life spiritually, when you let go of something that's had power over you, it's amazing how quickly God's, God's blessing starts flowing in your life. You, you get rid of excuses and God says, that's what I was waiting on. I was waiting on you to stop being in your own strength and the high places that you had. I was waiting for you to cast those things down and I am ready to meet you. I am ready to give you the finances you need. I'm ready to give you the encouragement you need. I am ready to meet you right where you are, but you've got to get rid of the excuses. You've got to have no more excuses. Excuses are so prevalent, we don't even know when we have them. We don't even know when we're using them. We just know that we're, we're, it's so comfortable. We're going to pray here in a second. We're not going to do it with music tonight. We're not going to follow our normal liturgy. We're just going to pray. Because I need you to figure out how to stop making excuses in your life. 
I need you to get so much in the word that you compare your thoughts to his thoughts. That you quit listening to what they have to say about it. That you quit limiting yourself to your own ideas, your own limitations, your own thoughts about the world. For some of us, they cripple us because it's not even real. It's just things that I don't quite know. I don't, man, I'm just not worth very much. I just don't think I can do this. We've got ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing and then we get mad at God. What? No more excuses. No more excuses. None for your marriage. None for your kids. None for your walk. None for your growth. Got to measure. Lord, what's going on in our lives here? Is there fruit in my life at all? No excuses if there's not. You know what the reason is? I don't know. You got to ask the Lord about you. Because we want to produce fruit. It could be anything from there's sin in your life to you're just in a season where you're planting and you're tilling. Is every season a harvest season? Oh, but why do we expect that in the kingdom, don't we? I'm always growing and should have... Man, you got to plant. you got to till. you got to work the ground. you got to allow some time for growth. Be encouraged tonight. No more excuses. No more excuses.